I think passion and determination, anything that's difficult, you need to be passionate about or else it's just not going to work out. So if it's writing your thesis for your PhD or it's building a business, there's going to be a lot of challenges and having passion is what's going to drive you through all of that and make you spring out of bed in the morning. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, good old-fashioned conversation. It seems like we have too many things to worry about, doesn't it? And we shouldn't because it's summertime and it's glorious. I mean, at least for those of us in the Northeast who've been waiting for excellent weather for a long, long time. And here it is. But, you know, remember, continuing our social distancing is going to be important. It's not going away. And we have to fight against the temptation to just go back to the way it used to be. But I bet there's a lot of people that have really gotten into gardening this spring and summer. And we're no exception to the rule. Those of you who've been gardening for a while, for whom gardening is part of your daily or at least regular activity, you're probably looking at this huge influx of people buying every seed and seedling that it comes out or is available. And you're shaking your heads and saying, what's up with all those people? There's nothing left. Well, I, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle. I grew up watching my parents work in the garden. And uh, I have these great memories of you know watching those tulips pop up in the spring in that huge corner of our backyard. And they were absolutely beautiful. I remember my mother cutting a bouquet to give me to give to my my teacher at school. What a memory, what a visual. There was little Sidney walking into school with all his friends looking at him, but he's proud because he's got his bunch of flowers of tulips and he's heading off to see Mrs. Weatherall, his first grade teacher. That's a memory. Also, I do remember those tomato plants and cucumbers that my father and my mother would work on in the backyard. We all know there's nothing better than a fresh backyard tomato. My father taught me to pick one right off the branch, take a little bite, and then sprinkle with salt before I took the next bite, adding more salt as I was going along. I know that means that he did bring the salt shaker into the garden, ready to have an absolutely perfect tomato, which is the way it should be. And I'm not so sure about all that salt these days, but boy, oh boy, do I remember how those tomatoes tasted. Now home in Hanover, New Hampshire, with lots of free time, or at least much more free time than I've had in a long time, gardening has moved to the front of the line. How is it that I enjoy kneeling down in the grass to pull out weeds, knowing that I'll never win that battle? There are, I mean, there's always going to be more weeds, right? Even the area I cleared yesterday, when I go back to it later today, I'm sure there are going to be plenty more weeds. I actually Googled the other day, pulling weeds to see what would come up. And you know what the first hit was? It was, quote, is pulling weeds a waste of time? End quote. Sigh. Well, no, we're not going to spray the grass with chemicals or pesticide. And in truth, I really don't care if my grass is perfect or not. I mean, I'm not perfect. Let my lawn reflect me in all my glory. Even when it's full of weeds, it still looks great as far as I'm concerned. But the act of digging up those weeds, just a small accomplishment, feels good, really good, especially these days. And to that Google question, is pulling weeds a waste of time? The answer is no, it's not a waste of time at all. Just remember the process and those minor successes each time you pull that weed out by its roots. You can hear that sound. If all we ever tried to do is win the war, we're going to end up with a lot more failures than we'd like. And it would be easy to lose our nerve or our energy. Each weed, each root, each success, that feels pretty good. And who knows, maybe that war against the weeds is going to be won 
one step or one baby step at a time. I didn't actually plan to talk so much about gardening today, but I've got to tell you about the herbs and the little tomatoes before I'm done. My wife did a curbside pickup of seedlings, you know, little plants, and got a little excited. You know how seedlings are often sold in those tiny, tiny little pots as a group of six? Well, she may have missed that particular detail. So when she bought five plants and brought them home, she ended up with 30. Now we've got a lot of little critters running around the backyard. They're all part of the Finkelstein Outdoor Condo Association and they've got to eat too. And so we're taking care of them, I think. We've got thyme and savory, Italian parsley, basil, of course, even a few sunflower plants and begonias and lots of tomatoes. More than a few guests of the SIDCAST have remarked on uh, you know how the process of getting somewhere can be so rewarding. And because that process can be long, could be hard, especially for careers and for so many people and the choices that we make, you're actually much better off enjoying that process than fighting it. That impatience doesn't get you very much at all. The process turns out to be where the action is. And that takes some wisdom to understand that and even to believe that. I don't think I believed that when I was 20 or 25, but I learned to believe it over time. So what I'm doing now, one plant at a time and one little critter coming over to take a nibble each time, that's part of the process and that's okay. Alas, gardening does come with risks and the biggest one is Lyme disease. And it's a very big deal up here in New England and I think plenty of other places around the country, maybe even other countries for all I know. It's really hard to see those ticks and really bad things can happen if they bite you. I suppose it's quaint to think that something that can hurt you in a year or two or five is such a terrible thing when we're living in a time when something can hurt us very, very badly in a matter of days. But anyone who's suffered from Lyme disease knows it's not a happy scenario. And it's especially because it's so often misdiagnosed. People miss it. Doctors miss it. Which brings me to my guest today on the SIDCast, Evan Gollop. Evan has Lyme disease, but it took him four years and over 30 doctor visits, often in tremendous pain and even disability, to figure out what it actually was that he had. Evan has a finance background. He's been a trader in the hedge fund business for years. And along the way, he's also invested in several startups. So he thinks like an entrepreneur, which is another way to say that when you see a problem that's not being solved, you look for solutions. And if that solution looks promising, you start thinking about how to bring that solution to lots of other people who are dealing with the same problem and would probably welcome a new solution to that problem. Entrepreneurs call that scaling. Evan ended up interacting with as many as 50 other people who were dealing with Lyme disease, but they usually didn't know it for a very, very long time. He became something of an expert and he helped many other people navigate their way through the medical world, try to get a diagnosis, try to figure out what it was that's going on and how to treat it. Along with a co-founder who was also dealing with Lyme, Evan created a company called We Are Not Alone, which stands for WANA, W-A-N-A for short. WANA is a community forum for people dealing with the same medical condition or challenge or quandary, providing advice and compassion to each other, sharing ideas and how to get better. For anyone who knew that there was something wrong with them, something hurting them, but just didn't know what it was, couldn't get a clear diagnosis, WANA is a place that can help. And you could see how that can help for Lyme disease and anything else that could be complex and confusing. Evan's a young man on the younger side, I think of 35, and he's really interesting to talk to. I learned a lot from the conversation and I think you will too. Some of what we talked about reminded me a little bit of Kate Spear, the CEO of the Doggess, who was on season one, the woman who spoke openly on the SIDCAST about her battles with mental health and especially the consequences of being misdiagnosed for years. And much more recently, Dr. Rita Sharon from Columbia University, the woman who started Narrative Medicine, a lot of what she said and what we talked about from that podcast, I think, echoed in some of the conversation that was happening with Evan and his story. So let's meet Evan Golub. By the way, if you're gardening while listening to this episode, don't stop. Just be careful. Here's Evan's story. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I am here back in my dining room in Hanover, New Hampshire, talking to Evan Golub. Hi, Evan. Nice to meet you. 
Nice to meet you as well. Where are you right now as we talk? I am based in New York City, the epicenter of the virus. So how has it been going there? Have you been there the whole time? I've been here the whole time. I haven't left. I think I'm the last of my friends here left in the city. <laughs> and I just wanted to be here. It's a pretty historic time, I think, to be here. And the 14 years I've lived here, I've never seen it so quiet. It's been actually really nice, as strange as that sounds. I feel oh. awful, obviously, for everyone going through a tough time, but I feel fortunate that I'm healthy. So yeah, right. it's been a really interesting time to be here. And I guess the name of your company, We Are Not Alone, applies to what we just said, isn't right. it? That's right. <laughs> So we are not alone. Wana, W-A-N-A. Is it Wana.com? It's actually joinwana.com. They can't get an original name on anything nowadays, right? I think Alibaba actually owns Wana.com. And I don't even know if they've done anything with it. But a lot of the easier URLs are all taken, even if they're not being. Right. I'm sure they'd be happy to sell it to you for a couple hundred thousand, of course. (laughs) Yeah. So what is Wana? Wana is a digital platform that connects people with various chronic and invisible health conditions. And this really stemmed from my own battle with chronic illness, which started in 2013. I was a healthy boy up until that point, or at least I thought a 29-year-old guy who was in the gym five days a week and all that type of stuff and woke up on a Sunday morning with a really intense case of vertigo, which stemmed into weeks and months of disequilibrium and dizziness. You never had anything like that before? Vertigo usually comes in bouts of three. I had had minor cases of vertigo, two prior to this, that lasted for a few hours. And then I lied down and left work, lied down, and I was fine the next morning. This one didn't go away. And about two weeks in, my brother carried me over his shoulder to a... ENT we found on ZocDoc a block away, ear, nose, and throat doctor, which is typically who you see for vestibular issues. Your vestibular system is anything related to your vision, your auditory senses, and anything related to the proprioceptor nerves in your neck. And long story short, I ended up getting misdiagnosed for more than four years across more than 30 practitioners. For four years? Four years. You're in some kind of small village in the middle of, you know, the edge of the earth, or where are you? You're in New York. <laughs> I'm in New York with City. Among the most famous, I mean, the best doctors in the world, they'll tell you that, to be sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But hold on. Your brother had to carry you? My, I was so dizzy. He literally picked, I mean, I don't know if you've had sort of intense vertigo ever before, but it, it's no. to the point where it's, your world is violently spinning, mm. and even walking it can become difficult. And so he literally like threw me over his shoulder. This was was between a week or two in and we found a doctor on ZocDoc a block away and he laid me on his lobby floor and his lobby was spinning. And so he gave me pregnisone and some antibiotics and basically told me I had an inner ear infection, which is what I had heard from all the ENTs I eventually saw. And then- Did that, sorry, I mean, did actually alleviate the symptoms? So he gave me another prescription called meclizine, which actually helped the nausea. That was a lifesaver. However, it didn't really help what I would call the root cause Mm -hmm. because these symptoms kept coming back. And so I saw more ENTs and then I started seeing neurologists because I figured maybe something's wrong with my brain and maybe it's not an inner ear infection. And so all the neurologists told me I had what are called vestibular migraines. These are migraines that sort of result in balance loss and dizziness and vestibular issues versus just kind of headaches. So I believed that for a long time as well, probably a year or two. And it wasn't until my best friend said, why don't you see my acupuncturist? He fixed my knee and I was able to run the marathon 
I think you should get another opinion, a more holistic opinion. And he wasn't able to figure me out, but he said, I know who can. It's my mentor's mentor. He's a former brain surgeon who now practices integrative and functional medicine. And so I went to see that practitioner and he had looked through what was a binder that was an inch thick that I had brought of all my blood work, MRIs, CAT scans, ENGs, VEs. This after after how long? This was like where are we at four now? years in. Four, wow. Yeah, this was four years in of being frustrated and feeling alone and no one truly understanding that I was really, really sick and that this was not an inner ear infection. And by the way, I had gone back to the chairman of neurology at a big hospital here in New York and I had said, doctor, how does this make any sense? I never had a headache my whole life. For 29 years, I never took an Advil. And then all of a sudden, I have daily vestibular migraines, which result in balance loss and dizziness and light sensitivity and memory loss and brain fog and all these crazy symptoms. And he said, Evan, we don't understand the root cause, but you should take these SSRIs, which are antidepressants. And so anyway, let me jump forward. I ended up seeing this functional medicine doctor who looked through all this stuff and he just looks up to me and he says, where's your Western blot? And I didn't know what that was at the time. And so it turns out a Western blot is a test for Lyme disease. Several weeks later, that ends up coming back positive. And it all made so much sense because when I was a little younger, I grew up in Westchester, New York, just north of the city, which is Mm -hmm. a sort of Lyme endemic area and started putting the pieces of the puzzle really together and not just slapping symptoms on it, which is what I found a lot of the traditional or conventional practitioners I was seeing uh, were doing. And it also turned out that I had a mold situation in my apartment and mold illness is actually an underlying epidemic going on right now, but can trigger Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the Lyme bacteria. It can also trigger retroviruses, including Epstein-Barr virus, HHV6, and strep, which were all showing up active in my blood, which no one understood. And so now I was getting smarter and Mm -hmm. really seeing functional medicine doctors who really understood what was driving all these symptoms. that was three years ago. And I will say that I've dedicated the last three years of my life to trying to get as smart as possible on these conditions, these sort of natural and holistic ways to heal the body from these symptoms. And after biohacking my way back to health, I ended up building a community of what became over 100 people with Lyme disease who I helped through their battles. And while doing so, was kind of thinking in the back of my mind, why am I having a hundred separate conversations? Because we're all talking about our symptoms are diagnoses, what practitioners were seeing, what supplements were taking, what makes us feel good, what makes us feel like crap, what makes us hurt. And if you could just combine all these conversations and then also maybe apply some data analytics to it, you'd come up with some pretty powerful takeaways. And so that was really the sort of genesis or the idea of WANA, which was building a user-generated content platform that was specifically designed and architected for health. Because as great as Facebook and Instagram and Reddit are, they're fabulous platforms. They were not designed or architected for health conversations. And so that's really what we're doing. So let me go back and a couple of things that, that I'm curious about. So the doctor that asked you this question, did you have this test yep. to indicate Lyme disease? Do you know why he asked you that? And did it take him a long time to get to that question? That was probably on my second visit. And I think he had seen all of my symptoms. I had tremendous neck pain, which is very common with Lyme disease, depending on which coinfection 
co-infections you have, but some of the co-infections can, the bacteria can actually embed itself inside your cells in your neck and people have tremendous neck pain. And I had light sensitivity, which is a very common symptom. And I think he just understood that Lyme goes very much mis and underdiagnosed for could be years and years. And I think it just dawned on him when he asked me that I had never even heard about Lyme. No one, let alone testing me for it, no one had even mentioned it. So I saw sort of the frustration in his face when he saw my reaction. And I think this is just happening too frequently, unfortunately. Yeah, Lyme disease is something we know about up here in northern New England. It's been around for a while. And I have friends that were diagnosed with Lyme, not as the first choice of that diagnosis, but not the type of saga you just described of four years. And it's very, very serious. It could lead you to, well, you just described some really rough symptoms. One of my friends was only a little bit older than you, very healthy, and she was in ICU for a short period of time, luckily recovered completely. Good to hear. So you use the term functional medicine, you use the term integrative medicine. Could you tell us what that really means? Yeah. Western medicine, typically you go to medical school and you typically focus on one area or one acute area of the body and you have all these specialists like these ENTs and these neurologists etc. With integrative or more functional medicine you're really looking at the body holistically and functional medicine doctors understand that your IBS or your the inflammation in your stomach may be related to your brain fog which may be related to the pain in your lower back because All disease really stems from inflammation. And it's really about identifying what the root cause of the inflammation is, where Western medicine, I think, is really great at identifying symptoms and offering a solution to sort of mask or help those symptoms, but not really fixing the actual symptoms themselves. And then integrative medicine is really in between. So it's typically a Western medical doctor who now practices functional medicine, but looks at both sides. So they'll look at blood work and labs and urine tests, but then they'll also kind of do more functional testing as well. And thinking, yeah, really honing in on what is driving or what is the root cause of all of these symptoms. Right. And so sometimes that would include some homeopathic activity or not? Sure. Homeopathic remedies, vitamin supplements, acupuncture, cranial sacral therapy, which I did a lot of, things like infrared saunas, which are very detoxifying and get a lot of toxins out of the body, yoga, meditation, lots of lifestyle changes to Mm -hmm. one's life, Mm -hmm. dietary and nutrition is a huge aspect of functional Mm -hmm. medicine. It's kind of crazy to think that at least my general practitioner never really asked me what I was eating. It turned out I was extremely sensitive to a lot of the foods I was ingesting. And I'm now grain-free, dairy-free, and gluten-free, which I know sounds really scary, probably (laughs) to most of your listeners, but I feel incredible. And And they were related to the Lyme disease symptoms or there was was something different? So Lyme and specifically mold illness, which is also known as chronic inflammatory response syndrome, can create sensitivities. Food sensitivities, chemical sensitivities, can also trigger something called mast cell activation syndrome, which is another sort of, is when your cells become very sensitive. And a lot of people in the Lyme community become very, very sensitive specifically to gluten, to dairy, and other what can be inflammatory foods. Yeah. So I have more questions about what you're saying is really interesting on the nutrition side. So I have a a fantastic doctor, kind of an old time doctor that I have a cell phone number. I'm not 
a special friend to have that. So if there's anything going on, he's really fantastic. And a few years ago, maybe two or three years ago, you know, when you get your regular blood work, you get a test for diabetes. And I didn't have, thank goodness, diabetes, but there's a category that they call it pre-diabetic, which f- totally freaked me out. And I wasn't anywhere in a danger zone compared to people really are. But I went on this radical diet and I always ate healthy. I'm in pretty good shape, but I eliminate all the bad stuff, <laughs> including some of those treats that I have to say I still like. So my annual checkup, I went back and I wrote down all the stuff to tell them because I was proud of my work. I just wrote it down roughly and I said, you know, French fries reduced 99.9%. I think I had, you know, one serving in one year. That's not bad. Great. Potato chips, another one of my bad habits, 100%. I've gone now gone back on that slightly, but 100%. And I go and then, you know, talking about vegetables and healthy food and this. And anyway, it doesn't matter what's in it specifically. And I handed it to him. And he was so interested in that. He had not been trained in that. He's very smart. He has a bit of an integrative medicine side to him because he does a lot of, I don't know if I should use the word therapy. It's not exactly right, but he talks to the whole person. That's for sure. But he kept my list. He asked me, can I keep your list? And I said, yeah, yeah, of course. I don't remember everything that's on the list. But the point is, here's a world-class, incredible doctor. And he really didn't have hardly any training and deep understanding of nutrition. Yeah, it's really just like, The system is a little broken and you hear very well-known functional medicine doctors such as Dr. Mark Hyman say this, that in medical school, he didn't really learn about any lifestyle changes. He didn't learn much about nutrition. I think he says he had one course in it or one day of learning about Mm -hmm. it. Meanwhile, his entire sort of practice now is fundamentally based on nutrition and what we're putting into our bodies. Another thing he says is, which I love, why are you giving me Wellbutrin? I don't have a deficiency in Wellbutrin. And what he's saying is these synthetic pills that most of our country is taking on a daily basis, they're not actually fixing the root cause, which is what I was mentioning earlier. It's merely acting as a band-aid of masking some sort of situation or inflammation going on. And so he's saying, and most of functional medicine is saying, identify the actual root cause and fix that. So maybe the inflammation is coming from foods you're eating or from being in a sympathetic state of fight or flight. And so if you kind of just shift that, you may not need those synthetic pills. Right. Now, some of the things that you've said, yoga, meditation, very severe diet restrictions of of particular types. I even brought up the word homeopathic, vitamins. So I think we're in a little different place in, you know, 20 than we were a few years ago. But this stuff is still considered way out there by the dominant medical community. And the reason they say this, and they is too broad a term because it's not like everybody does, but I think it's, correct me if you think I have an outdated view on this, but that there have not been double-blind clinical studies on many of these types of treatments. And so they're kind of out there. And uh, so they're not respected in the kind of dominant medical community. What's your take on that? I think you're absolutely right. And it's sad that they're actually, it doesn't mean that those treatments aren't effective. It means that there haven't been dollars, research dollars allocated to them to prove that they're effective. And this is a function of the way that our healthcare system is set up. We have multiple massive pharma companies, $50 billion companies that rely on sort of pumping out medications. And if you have more natural and approachable remedies and treatments, that can actually heal the body, that is sort of counterintuitive to the very business model that our healthcare system is based on. And so a lot of this does come down to business. 
and dollars. Having patients take pills every single day is a really profitable business model. You think about the LTV or the lifetime value of a patient that's taking two, three, four, six. My cousin has fibromyalgia. I think she's on, I don't know, eight to 12 pills a day. That's a valuable customer to say Mm -hmm. the least. And so what is the incentive to do a double blind study on how yoga can actually positively impact the immune system when yoga is free? It's an excellent question. It makes me also wonder, do you have, are there doctors that join your communities? We'll talk about your business in more detail in a minute, but you have different communities for different problems that people have, but are doctors joining as well? So we just designed a practitioner profile that we will sort of be rolling out in a future version. And we will be having sort of practitioners join and we want to eventually build a marketplace of practitioners that are kind of personalized to you. So we have an 11 step onboarding process where we ingest your diagnoses and symptoms and treatments you've tried in location during the onboarding process. And then we can create a very personalized marketplace of products, services, and eventually practitioners that are related to your diagnoses and symptoms. And so we're not quite there yet, but the plan is to to get there right. soon. And so the assumption is that there will be a, a medical community that will want to be part of something that has an element that is challenging to their dominant worldview. Correct. In fact, I have a bunch of doctor friends, and I know from that community, they're, again, I'm overgeneralizing to be sure, but the idea of patients coming to doctors telling them what's wrong, what they should be doing, generally speaking, is not very well received. The doctor is the expert. That's why they went to medical school. That's why they were resident and intern, etc. And you're going online and reading a few articles on the internet, and you come to me and you tell me, well, this is what I think you should do. You, know, you can imagine a doctor kind of pulling her hair out and wondering what to do about that. I'm sure that as you go to the and have gone in the medical community, you hear things like that. How do you look at it? For sure. I think when it comes to an acute situation, if you break your arm and you get rushed to the emergency room, we have no better healthcare system than ours. It's great. If you have a chronic condition with mysterious symptoms and you have been sick and symptomatic for years and you are not getting answers or you are getting answers that are really more describing your symptoms, then I don't think our system is, or sort of Western medicine is necessarily the best option for you. And what I learned through my battle with chronic illness after seeing more than 30 experts is that the experts, unfortunately, aren't always the experts, especially when it comes to chronic and invisible conditions. The most helpful people are actually people who've been through these battles and experienced them and they have sort of the wisdom of what's been helpful. Mm-hmm. Talking to a doctor who's never had your symptoms, I think that's a great place to start. But if you are perpetually being told that it's in your head or you're not getting good answers, I think it's time to really look in a new direction. And uh, it's amazing the things that can help these conditions and these symptoms. I have not only helped myself, I mean, if I had listened to kind of the original doctors, I'd still be on antibiotics and antidepressants and still have, you know, most of my symptoms. I'd probably have new side effects from the antidepressants. I need to be on pills for those side effects. I'd be on multiple pills every single day and I'd be an annuity to all the pharma companies. This is exactly what they want. But instead, I identified the root cause. I treated it properly through more natural and alternative therapies. I was getting better and better and better and have now helped lots of others. 
and I've heard it over and over and over. Evan, I've seen seven expert doctors in New York City. None of them helped me, but your functional medicine doctor has made me feel so much better over the last six months. I have my life back. Thank you so much. I mean, testimony after testimony after testimony. Mm-hmm. People who have unlimited resources, let's just say, and have seen the best doctors in, in New York City who were left feeling helpless are now getting help and feeling incredible. And so just because there aren't double blind studies on yoga or acupuncture or Chinese herbs, Chinese medicine and Eastern medicine has been around for thousands of years. I think you could say Western medicine's probably been around for 100 to 150 years. So I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying if Western medicine hasn't worked for you, I think it's worth opening your eyes and views to more Eastern or holistic medicine. Yeah, I could see that. I have people in my family that have been frustrated, ended up going the pill route when, you know, they get these whole things and they have different times a day and there's a way of packaging them, you know, the whole story and it's tough. Actually, for one person in my family, they've recently started to use CBD. Sure for chronic arthritis, pain from arthritis. And it's been, according to her, extremely effective. So actually that's not a new, that's almost becoming mainstream. Not quite, but getting there, right? No, definitely. So CBD is the number one most commonly used treatment on WANA, which I was not expecting, but CBD is super, super popular and has shown, I don't personally use it, but I'm hearing left and right from people, right, with fibromyalgia or chronic pain or nerve pain and anxiety that it's been extremely beneficial for them. Mm-hmm. So. Now, I don't know if there's any quick tips you can give specifically on Lyme disease because it's, you know, if it takes years to figure it out, everyone's a little bit different. And then I want to talk about your business more generally. But let me start with that because there's so many, there are more people and people realize that, that get this and it's very difficult. It's super difficult. First thing I should say is you are not alone because when you're battling it, you feel like you're all by yourself. It really depends on what co-infections you have. And so there's more than a hundred different co-infections and each one has totally different triggers and symptoms. So it's really difficult to generalize. I actually think Lyme needs to be sort of recategorized as sort of a condition itself. But generally, acupuncture was very helpful for me, taking lots of vitamins, including the B complex and other vitamins I was deficient in, taking glutathione, which is the body's master antioxidant, which helps with detoxifying. Phosphatidylcholine is a phospholipid that's incredibly helpful for improving cellular membrane health in both the gut and the brain. I take phosphatidylcholine every single day and I think it gave me my brain back. Propolis spray, which actually you had, I think Carly Stein on your podcast, she introduced me to it. I take it every single day. Propolis comes from the inside of the beehive. It is anti-inflammatory, antimicrobial, antiviral and antibacterial. I found it to be very helpful for my gut and for other things that I had going on. And so I take that daily. Uh, Yeah, I'd say that's probably... Yeah, that's quite a few. And they're all natural types of treatments, if you will. So let's talk a little bit about the business side. So you were um, involved in hedge funds. You were a trader. Is that what you were doing before? That's correct. I worked in the finance or hedge fund industry for 13 years across three different hedge funds. And did you leave because of 
about the story you just shared about the Lyme disease and the lack of knowing how to deal with it. So I left for Wana, but about a year or two prior to leaving, I was working from home, which now seems so common, wasn't so mm-hmm. common uh, a few years ago, and really honing in on my health and improving and just sort of had to get to the bottom of it. And work was great. They were allowing me to work from home and they were fantastic. And then when I thought of this idea, we started to build a prototype or what's called a MVP, a minimum viable product. And we tested it amongst a cohort of people with, you know, 50 people with Lyme disease and people were using it every day. And I just said, you know what? It's time to build something. The world needs this. And all the information, the books, the podcasts, the YouTube videos, the practitioner information, the fact that data analytics could be applied to all this and then come up with really interesting takeaways. I just felt that there needs to be really what I'm going to be calling a social network for health, which is what WANA really is. And so you have a co-founder, is that right? Yes, co-founder is actually my closest Lyme buddy, as we call it. We met on a dating app prior to me being diagnosed with Lyme and her as well. And I had mentioned when we first met that I had vertigo and all these symptoms and we went our separate ways. But several months later, she reached back out to me saying that she has vertigo. And so I started helping her. And at the same time, that's when coincidentally, I sort of got tested for Lyme disease. And and I just mentioned that to her and I started pointing her in the right direction and sort of guiding her on which practitioners to see. And she came back with a positive diagnosis as well. And so we ended up becoming what we call Lyme buddies and really helping each other through our battles and starting to discover practitioners and new modalities. And we started seeing a Chinese herbalist who put us on like a whole herbal protocol. And we started improving and healing and getting just better and better. And that's when we started building this network of what became over 100 people with Lyme disease that we were sort of helping as well. And then she really was the one who said, it was funny, she just said on the phone one day, she said, Ev, there should be an app for this. (laughs) And I just paused and I said, that's exactly right. There should be. You know, we had met on a dating app, but why is there no like health focused app that's creating community and providing information and a support network for people going through various chronic conditions. Right. Now you have many chronic conditions represented today in the app. Yeah, we do. We started with Lyme, but then we branched out into a few more what we call invisible conditions. So these tend to be autoimmune conditions such as fibromyalgia, POTS, endometriosis, PCOS. And then we started receiving tons of suggestions from the community on new conditions to go into that we didn't have. And so we've recently uploaded, I think it's several hundred now conditions, including more general stuff like diabetes and cancer and things like that. And so we're slowly building out the database, but yeah, it started with more chronic and invisible conditions. Right. So what is the business model? How do you generate revenue? Yeah, it's a good question. We have a few ways. We'll start with the marketplace. So we're building a marketplace of product services and practitioners. Practitioners can pay fees to be listed on the platform. So e-commerce, we'll call that. And then we're building a business or partnering with businesses that are helping with patient recruiting for clinical trials. And so typically clinical trials 
patients are recruited through what are called CROs. Um, and their job is to go out and find patients maybe who have fibromyalgia who are willing to participate and try a new drug. And so we can kind of create a more direct model there where we have patients who have these conditions. We can introduce them and provide them information, information on trial sponsors and sort of be compensated that way. And then there's sort of package data sales, which would be packaging data on people with certain conditions. And there are large buyers of this data who try and analyze this data to create better solutions for these communities. And so finding structured and unstructured data, especially on rare conditions, is very, very difficult. And so we've kind of created a social mechanism where we can sort of ingest a lot of that data. So are you doing the some of the data analytics yourself or you're able to provide a community that others can, can interact with? Yeah, the data analytics will really be run more by eventually third parties. We are just aggregating or collecting tons of data, and then we can anonymize it. There are third-party companies that basically apply what's called a token to someone's data, and so it's completely anonymous. And that token then can then be identified by other counterparties, and you can start to analyze data in a very anonymous way, but have all the granular detail. Right. So that's a really big deal, of course, around privacy. Facebook and others have been attacked endlessly about this, and for good reason. Now, you're talking about healthcare and people's personal information. So it's even more important. I mean, you're all about healthcare. So I don't know if there's any business immune from hacking anywhere anymore. So I'm sure that must come up with, certainly with third party, with bigger companies that want to partner with you, they're going to get sued if you do something that's not good. And they're the deeper pockets. And then of course, just if I think about myself, do I want to be on a community? I just got to feel that my data is going to be safe. So our CTO came from a cybersecurity healthcare company and is very familiar with cybersecurity and HIPAA compliance. And so I think we got an incredible CTO and partner who is very focused on this. We are not HIPAA compliant yet. We actually don't have to be because we are not what's called a covered entity. However, we plan to become HIPAA compliant soon. Mm -hmm. You know, I was going to ask you, I forgot, when you left the world of finance to do a startup, what did they say to you? They think you were nuts or what? Uh, a couple people did. I had what was a, a good career going, and including my father thought I was nuts. But when we started to ideate the brand and the product and what we were doing, it seems like there's a real opportunity. And so people started to really understand that this could add a lot of value to the world and be something very exciting to work on for the next 5, 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. I think there's no one out there that says you're crazy, then it's not a radical enough idea. That's right. And what about funding? Is it self-funded or have you gotten um, angel investors or or what? Yeah, I self-funded it for the first year, year and a half, and that got us to a prototype and an MVP that we were able to test. And then when I quit my full-time job, ended up uh, raising our first pre-seed round, which was through angel investors, and we raised uh, just over a million dollars. And these were sophisticated kind of guys I knew from the finance world and venture capitalists and things like that. And so now we are soon gearing up for what will be our next round of fundraising, which will be our uh, seed round. And will that be angel, do you think, or potentially venture capital? More venture institutional capital, so probably venture capital. Right. So in building up the business to date, what's been one of the biggest surprises you've had to, that you didn't anticipate? I'm sure there's lots of things that happen because I don't know whether you ever started a business before, but there's a million things that happen. 
and you've invested in startups, so you know you knew more than the average person, I think. But uh, was there anything in particular that surprised you about all this? A lot of things are coming to mind. Uh, I think <laughs> the largest surprise was we hired a research company to help us identify who our target demographic was. Mm-hmm. And I remember just saying to the owner of the company, she said to me, you don't know your audience. Mm-hmm. And I basically said, bullshit. You yeah. could say what you like. Okay. <laughs> I said, bullshit. I don't know my audience. I have 150 people with Lyme disease in my phone that I've been helping for two plus years. And she just said, who's your target demographic? And she was absolutely right. And so just the naive thinking that I knew because I had a tiny, 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 tiny subset of the Lyme population that I knew that I knew who our audience was, or for that matter, all chronic conditions or invisible conditions and what these conditions were and average age and genders and income and what they're reading and hashtagging and posting. And I didn't have a marketing background. And so that was one of the more surprising aspects of launching a startup. So actually, who's in your team that's running this business now? So you have your co-founder still involved? Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned a CTO, right? Technology and information. You? Uh, Myself. And then we have two other full-time employees. We have a director of strategy and people. I would almost call him as director of operations. Mm-hmm. And then we have a community manager who manages all of the posts and the messaging and makes sure everyone is abiding by our community guidelines and is really kind of the face and, and voice of WANA on the platform. Right. Because that team is what people will bet on, of course, and have already. Uh, uh, that's everything. There's no shortage of good ideas out there, but there's a shortage of great talent. Execution is everything. (laughs) Everyone's got a great idea, but I would say the idea is 1% and execution is 99. So, you know, I've had a bunch of entrepreneurs on the SIDCAST before, and I'm always interested in learning how do you keep it going when things are tough, when things don't work as expected, things get messed up. I mean, you just described your team. I'm sure everyone is good, but it's not exactly a big company and you're trying to do a lot of different things. How do you keep that balance and how do you kind of get up off the floor when things get screwed up? It's a great question. I'd say this is probably the largest challenge that I've had, especially coming from what you would call more of a desk job or a stable job that even though there are highs and lows, especially in an industry as intense as the hedge fund industry, but startup world is really a roller coaster. There are days and weeks where we are building the social network for health and it feels like it, we're building the next Twitter. And then there are days and weeks where things aren't going right and there's headaches and things going wrong. And I think you just always have to look at the bigger vision and make sure you understand that it's not necessarily a linear path toward it. And just know that every founder, every entrepreneur has been through that roller coaster. There is no business that has been super easy and straight up the whole time. And so you have to be athletic. You have to keep getting back up. You have to be persistent and determined, which is why I think you have to be so passionate about what you're doing. Because the second that there is an obstacle, it's going to be If your heart's not in it, it's going to be a really difficult challenge. So uh, there's a little background noise. I'm not sure if you hear it. The lawnmower in front of the house from the crew out there, which is the beauty of working from home. And in my case, broadcasting a sitcast from home. But it adds a little bit of authenticity. I really am home. That's right. The guy's cutting my grass.
You know, when you describe that passion, it just occurred to me, anyone's got a PhD, it's really not easy. <laughs> You're working like crazy on one little narrow idea that has to be original that no one's ever done before and you have to execute on it at a level that experts around the world who are part of the process will say, yes, you've done it. And so I remember some advice I got, which is you better absolutely love this idea you're starting on because by the time you're done, you might not love it. You got to go back and remind yourself why you keep doing it. And it sounds like what you just described is not all that off, <laughs> not all that different, is it? That's right. I mean, I think passion and determination, anything that's difficult, you need to be passionate about or else it's just not going to work out. So if it's writing your thesis for your PhD or it's building a business, there's going to be a lot of challenges and having passion is what's going to drive you through all of that and make you spring out of bed in the morning and be excited about building what you're building or writing the topics that you're writing about. And so my father was very, very passionate to say the least. He worked for Panasonic for 35 years, which especially for his generation was a very a long career um, in his time, or I shouldn't say that for his generation, but 35 years is a lot of determination and passion and dedication at one employer. And he just raised me to be enthusiastic, passionate, and honest. Mm -hmm. Those are three mm -hmm. qualities I try to instill. Is the current crisis, COVID-19 crisis, is this having an impact on your business as a business? And I'm also interested in kind of how this might change healthcare. Yeah, forward. it's been, Lana has been a net beneficiary of the COVID crisis. Number one, we are a digital community, which digital communities, I would say, are more important than ever before, mm -hmm. social distancing and isolation. Mm -hmm. And number two, we are focused on health which I would say now our audience or our TAM or attainable market has sort of increased by a large multiple because everyone is concerned about their health and their immune systems and potential immune boosting supplements. And they're more aware of what they're putting in their bodies um, and how they're feeling. And so I think for what we're doing, our audience has grown a lot. And then also just from an engagement perspective, engagement retention and all the metrics have been up a lot during COVID. So yeah. that's been nice to see. People have had the time yeah. actually to do what they really want to do. Because I guess if you're working full time and then you're commuting and then you got the, whatever your chronic issue is that you're dealing with, it's tough and you just kind of don't know where to turn. Got it. Um, yeah. So you were, well, I'll ask you if you were an investor in startups itself. Uh, yeah. In, yep. I started investing in startups in early stage, specifically consumer companies about seven or eight years ago. I always had a passion for startups and was fortunate to have some discretionary income to start allocating towards them. And one of the first was a nice story. It was my best friend's company. It's a company called Bomba Socks, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's a direct-to-consumer sock company that has done pretty well. And I sort of was helping him in the beginning. And I remember a lot of people telling us because he quit his full time job to do it. Kind of similar stuff like you're crazy, you're nuts. There's a million socks out there. There's Hanes, there's Nike elites. What, what are you doing? And I remember trying on the prototypes and just being like, these are the best socks I've ever tried on. And seeing how passionate he was about creating a better sock that was mission driven and wrapped in 
a more inviting or millennial driven brand. And yeah, we got the first prototypes. I remember we went out to Lollapalooza, which is a music festival in Chicago, and we packed our mm-hmm. backpacks filled with socks and we were giving them out to everyone for free. And we saw the reactions of everyone's faces and it was just incredible. People were mm-hmm. really impressed with them. And so, yeah, that business has done really well. He was also on Shark Tank which probably helped some of the propel some of the growth. But that business has gone from 400K in sales when we raised the original pre-seed round, which I helped with, to between 150 and 200 million in sales. Wow. It goes to show you also that old categories are old problems in the case of Lyme disease, if you will, when you take a fresh approach and that there's room for not all fresh or new approaches because they don't always work, but trying to execute at a higher level and provide a better service or a better product, it actually could payoff. It's one of the beauties of entrepreneurship, really. I mean, the failure rate, as you know, is extremely high, but that doesn't mean that there's not room. In fact, there is room for all all kinds of new ideas. And I I love that. I think it's great. Yeah. I think you could apply that to Carly as well. And you could say there have been bee products and honey, uh, and there's a thousand types of honey on store shelves. And, but hers is marketed a different way and it's produced a different way and she has higher standards and she communicates that to her audience and therefore has i think she's growing at 300 percent year over year and is doing extremely well and doing really really well during covid as well so yeah i think what you said is very accurate and that's again carly stein who we had recently on the sitcast as well and so what's been the biggest difference from being an investor sitting on that side versus actually running the thing creating things two totally different seats i kind of like both investing is great i love investing i love befriending these founders and adding value i typically am then brought on as an advisor as well because i end up helping with capital raising and introductions and sort of recruiting or sourcing people and talent and so investing is more than just investing for me it's getting hyper involved and becomes more of an advisory role and operating is totally different it's really about execution and getting things done and knocking off the checklist every day and every week and continuously moving the ball forward and hitting goals and so yeah there are two totally different seats i'm kind of a fan of both yeah let me ask you what happens if facebook decides this is a really great category for us and we're going to do it. i'm sure they already do something because they do everything but to start to target Evan and Juana because they're hearing uh, Mark's listening to this podcast, he's a holy cow, let's go after this guy. He's got something going on. What are you going to do about that? Yeah, so I think they already have. Um, Facebook developed something several years ago called Groups where they are matching you not only with your friends, but they are matching you with people who you have shared interests with who you do not know. Mm-hmm. And Groups has grown 300% in the last two years, from 2017 to 2019, which shows that people don't want to just connect with random people they friended over the last 15 years. They want to connect with people who understand them. There are tons of health groups. I'm in probably 10 of them. I just don't think the user experience is all that inspiring. Finding information isn't necessarily like the easiest process on Facebook and finding out what's actually helpful. I'm really just scanning the most recent posts. And it wasn't really designed or architected to then run analytics and sort of to take those analytics and data and feed it back to the consumer to say things like 64% of people with your symptoms have found XYZ to be helpful. Have you asked your practitioner about XYZ? 
things like that. And that's just not really what Facebook is designed for. I'd also say that the younger audience, we seem to be, WANA seems to be attracting a younger audience. About 80% of our audience is between 18 and 35. And I would say that audience, kind of Gen Z, millennials, aren't really excited to use Facebook anymore. I, I know. It's pretty funny, isn't it? And, uh, you know, I, I log in usually once a day to maybe check birthday reminders and things like that. But ultimately, as a platform, I, I'm really not utilizing Facebook too much anymore. And so the younger audience has really, we've seen over the last, you know, probably three to five years, a huge shift towards Instagram. And we see a lot of these uh, these people discussing their health information on Instagram. As much as I love Instagram, and I think it's one of the best user experiences in the world, I don't think it's the right platform to be sharing vulnerable health information or to be meeting others who've gone through what you've gone through or to find out information on maybe specific treatment protocols or things like that. And so, again, it, it just wasn't designed or architected for our purpose. And so I think you're going to see the emergence or you are sort of seeing the emergence of several platforms now that are more specific, serving more specific or specified cohorts of users. So uh, one thing you said is a little surprising is 18 to 35. These are people that are healthy. At least that's what everybody would say, right? I think. Yeah. yeah, you think is right. I'm a little older than that category. And there are aches and pains to start that I did not have when I was 18 to 35. But just goes to show you, doesn't it? Yeah, I'd say a lot of people, you know, it seems to be a common trend to be getting more and more symptomatic earlier in the life cycle. And, I, you know, I think a lot of that is what we're calling like modern illnesses. These are illnesses that are impacting younger audiences and tend to be more modern. So e even a condition like endometriosis 10 or 15 years ago really wasn't widely known. Yet now so many of my female friends have either been recently diagnosed or have endometriosis. And so this is something where five or 10 years ago, they were just told they had painful periods or pelvic pain, but it ends up being a condition. And so these are conditions that are impacting a slightly younger audience typically. And also like technology, I think is having a large impact on our immune systems. I know this is a very controversial topic, but I noticed it myself, my cell phone, uh, cell phone signals, 5G, Wi-Fi, uh, definitely sort of give me brain fog and all sorts of interesting symptoms that, you know, maybe didn't exist 15 years ago. And I'm hearing this over and over. I'm actually wearing blue light blocking glasses right now by Felix Gray because I have sensitivity to artificial blue light. So if I look at my phone or computer monitors, this is very common in the Lyme world. It can trigger a migraine as well as other symptoms, which are probably more common for people without Lyme, such as red eyes or neck tension, headaches. And so that's something that we really, we didn't have these sort of super bright LED monitors and phones and tablets and plasmas 20 years ago. And so these are newer conditions that are driving symptoms. Uh, that are impacting a younger audience that are using technology even more. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah, I can see that. And that is another controversial area where research is far from clear at all about this and probably will, is more likely to say there's nothing there than there is, but yet people are suffering. So there you go. I've, yeah, I've heard it over and over and I see it myself every single day with my phone personally. And, and I think Apple even writes in their handbook not to hold an iPhone within 9 7-inch within your head. And, you know, there are definitely, these signals are not healthy for us. Let's just sort of put it that way. Well, it's the first generation that's growing up with this 
literally attached to their brains uh, in a way that uh, just never was. I mean, cell phones have been around for a while, but even iPhones, when did the first iPhone come out? Is it 10 years or 12 years, whatever it is? That's when it, everything changed because you're walking around with a computer that you put next to your head. That's right. And, and a more powerful computer, more powerful than the supercomputers of the earliest days of computing, which is pretty kind of crazy. That's right. Um, so Evan, we're just about out of time. So I'd like to ask one last question about advice for others, but my little twist on it is advice for yourself. And so if you could go back in time to when you were 21, which is not that many years ago, but it's not yesterday either. If you can go back to yourself and kind of sit down next to the 21 year old Evan and say, there's one bit of advice I have for you. It's something you want to know about or think about. What would that be? Advice for yourself in the 21 year old version. What would that be? It's a really good question, and um, I have a few things jumping at me. I'd say respect your elders and learn from them. They have wisdom. They've been through everything you're going to go through over the next 20, 30, 40 years. And I think when you're 21, you tend to feel like a know-it-all, and or at least maybe I did. And really learn from your elders, the people above you, and respect your elders as well. I think that's... As an elder of sorts, I kind of like that idea, but I've learned it myself over time. And it turns out that's something you could learn and keep relearning. It's really amazing where wisdom can come from, including from the 21-year-old as well. Totally. Evan Gollop, thanks so much for being on the SIDCast and sharing your story, your personal story and your business story as well. I think it's an incredible idea and I'm going to take a little peek at it and we'll put into our show notes some links and contacts for anyone who wants to learn more about that. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Sid. Take care, Evan. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time. <laughs>